Now, you can create quantum states that are precisely 50% 0 and 50% 1. And when you measure those, you will end up with either a 0 or a 1 as a classical bit of information. But you cannot tell what that's going to be. And it doesn't matter what computing power you throw at that, whether that's classical computing power or some you know, immense quantum computer in the future, you can't know what's going to happen because that's the way the universe works. Hello and welcome to Fishy Business, a series dedicated to exploring the lesser known side of cybersecurity. I'm Alice. And I'm Brian and we're colleagues of Mimecast. Every episode will be joined by a special visitor who's definitely not your average guest, or in this case, average guests, because we have two, to share tales of risk, reward, and ridiculousness. We'll be looking for new ways to think about cybersecurity, to learn how we can all improve in the fight to stay safe. Alice, uh, in preparation for this episode on quantum computing, I simultaneously think I kind of have some understanding of it and also have no understanding of it at all, kind of like a Schrodinger's podcast host. Oh, Brian, was that an attempt at a quantum joke? You are brave. Well, that's a, a better one than I came up. I was trying to sort of come up with some kind of Bob and Alice thing, but I decided that Brian and Alice wasn't going to work because we're going to be talking cryptography and quantum cryptography and all of those kind of things. So I hope our guests haven't been too offended by that attempt and uh, will help us uh, shed some light on this very fascinating topic. Absolutely. Well, today we're joined by Duncan Jones, Head of Quantum Cybersecurity at Cambridge Quantum, and our very own Dr. Francis Gaffney, Director of Mimecast Labs and Future Operations. Welcome both. Hello. Hi there. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thank you for being with us today. Well, Duncan, it sounds like you have an incredibly interesting job and we'd love to get stuck in a little bit deeper. Um, would you be able to just explain to us, for example, how you would describe what you do to somebody at a dinner party? <laughs> so I'm glad you think it's interesting. I, I, I've been um, my entire career struggling to excite people at parties with what I do. Um, but if I had to summarise my role at the moment, it is to try to strengthen cybersecurity using quantum technology. That's probably the most concise form of it uh, that I can that I can muster. And usually then if I'm talking to somebody about this, they'll say, oh, I've heard a bit about quantum and then we'll dive into some conversation about what quantum computing even is. Um, but yeah, in essence, my, my group at um, Cambridge Quantum is looking on the sort of positive sides of quantum. And I'm sure in this conversation, we'll dive a bit into the negatives as well and what that will mean for the industry as a whole. But we look at the positive side. How can we use quantum computers in particular to make things better today in cybersecurity? Okay, I think I uh, can't wait to get into some of that, but I'd like to just uh, briefly turn back to Francis. And Francis, I'm not going to ask you if you make people excited at parties, because I'm sure you do, but how would you describe your job just in uh, a sentence or two? Yeah, so my function at Mindcast now is leading the Mindcast Labs, which looks at, you know, future tooling, you know, sort of um, software, hardware that we may need in place, you know, to address um, our concerns for the next three to five years. But we also look at future operations. So what intelligence you know, we need to start looking at. So the three areas my team are focusing on at the moment is the ethics in AI. Uh, we're looking at quantum cryptography, as, as, you, as you know. 
And then, and then other parts like the metaverse, looking at the cybersecurity of the metaverse, because these three things are where we are looking at, not focused necessarily for Mimecast, but where we need to start putting in protections. Okay, and I mean, you've actually got a, a much broader, um, longer career history, which we can't really go into a huge amount of detail on that now, and you have touched on it in previous podcasts, but maybe if you could just give us a, a sense of what the proudest moment of your career has been so far. So strangely, it's uh, not really to do too much with um, cybersecurity, it's more to do with counterterrorism, where I got given accommodation for um, some work I did out in the Gulf. So I feel we need to ask the obvious question here. Duncan, can you explain what quantum computing is? One of our previous guests on the podcast, former BBC tech correspondent, uh, Rory Ketlin-Jones, said you could explain quantum at a high level or accurately, but you couldn't do both. So let's start with a high-level version. And in fact, personally, I'd like to see if it's possible to do it without using words like qubit, superposition, or entanglement. So quantum. the main thing to realize is that quantum computing is very, very different to computing that we're familiar with and I'm slowly realizing that trying to draw analogies between the two is is not always that helpful um, what you will mostly be told at the sort of high level explanation which by the way is where I'm most comfortable um, uh, is that there is this fundamental difference where a classical computer you know the ones that we're familiar with are operating on binary data so you know we have zeros we have ones we perform um, functions on those and, and get outputs. Whereas a quantum computer is operating on quantum bits, which is what these qubits uh, refer to. And qubits are unique in that they can take a value of zero, they can take a value of one, but they can also take what is called a superposition of any combination of a little bit of zero and a little bit of one. That's quite interesting. Um, and then you add into the mix something called entanglement, which is where you can have multiple qubits that are linked together in some sense, so that you can't really consider each one individually anymore. They're sort of operating as a gang together. And there really isn't any kind of classical equivalent to that. It's very unusual behavior. But when you put all that together, what you end up with is a type of computation that is very different to classical, and it can solve some types of problems very, very effectively. So I wouldn't see it that in, let's say, 20 years, we won't be having this conversation on a classical laptop, we'll be having it on a quantum laptop. I would instead say that we expect that the sort of computation we can do on quantum computers will let us solve some problems that are completely out of reach for us today, and would be out of reach probably forever on classical computers. And so one way of, one way I think about it is that when you run a quantum computation, you have the opportunity to potentially compute on every possible input at once. So it's kind of like massive parallelization on, on the one hand. Yet there is this weird thing that when you measure this, because eventually we want to turn this quantum information into something that we can process. So it has to become classical bits again. When you measure it, you only get one answer. And that's the challenge. You've got to figure out a way that if you repeat that process perhaps several thousand times, you begin to get the answer to the problem that you're seeking, even though it's collapsing down to classical bits. So it's, it's a very 
complicated challenge to turn real-world problems into things that quantum computers can solve. There is something called Shor's algorithm, and, and, and that's also the basis of how we measure a quantum computer's effectiveness, uh, like, like um, Duncan was saying. So what would happen is you have the Shor's algorithm, um, and if a quantum computer can break it, um, or so you did solve for this, the classical computer would take billions of years, just to show you the difference. So a classical computer will you know, do that algorithm in billions of years. A quantum computer, if it follows Shor's algorithm, should be able to do it in a much, much, much shorter space of time. And that's the sort of definition for, for people like me in terms of trying to work out safety. Francis reminded me of something. So just to give you a sense of how quantum computers bring things into, into a scope that would be out of scope otherwise, even if you had something like, imagine you had 300 qubits um, sort of collected together that were entangled with each other. In order to capture or process the amount of information that that represents with a classical computer, you would need more bits than there are atoms in the universe to cope with that. I mean, when you entangle these things together, the, the relationships are so complex that a classical computer would struggle to simulate them. And once you get above a pretty you know, modest number of qubits, you, you just completely beyond what we would ever be able to compute. So this is why quantum computers are so exciting because we can suddenly, with a relatively modest number of qubits, simulate you know, complex things in the real world. And this is what's gonna to lead to things like drug discovery and medicine discovery and over time. And I think on that note, you've both made a really good point there around the power of quantum computing. And I think that power can often be quite scary to people who maybe don't have a full understanding of quantum computing and its benefits and, and those areas. Duncan, from your perspective, do you think quantum computing is something that that should be feared or do you think that's more of a media hype for people who maybe don't have a full understanding of, of its power and how it can be used beneficially? So quantum computers are going to do many many hugely positive things for humanity so on the whole people should welcome them with open arms they are going to transform almost every industry beyond belief and I don't think that's um, overstating the fact. So broadly speaking, yes, people should love quantum computers and, and the progress that we're making in this space. Now, in the world of cybersecurity alone, we need to think about them slightly differently. And, and there, we genuinely do need to fear them only in as much as that we should be galvanized into action to take steps so that we're ready for when a sufficiently powerful quantum computer comes along. So Francis has already alluded to, to Shaw's algorithm, and maybe we'll dive a bit deeper into that in a minute, but we know that there is this point of t in time coming, whether it's 10 or 15 years, where the encryption systems that we rely upon today could very well be broken on a quantum computer. So our industry does need to fear them and does need to take steps now so that we're ready for that moment. I think, Duncan, maybe if we could sort of just uh, dig a little bit deep into that. I mean, what you're referring to there is this concept of, of Q-Day, what everyone's referring to. And that's kind of when the media talks about uh, quantum computers breaking the internet or, or rendering all current encryption methods meaningless. Could you maybe just give us a sense of how we would get from this theoretical ability to crack encryption to the practical ability to actually crack encryption and, and possibly how close we are? It's difficult to make any firm predictions on 
how soon we'll get to that moment. I don't think there's much doubt that we will get to that moment. And estimates that I see range from, well, on the, on the aggressive side, people think, you know, six, seven years away, we could get there. Uh, I think 10 to 15 is probably more of a, a common viewpoint. Some people place this 20, 30 years away, but I think they are underestimating the human capacity for scientific progress. Um, and also, I should mention that there are many factors that can bring that date forward as well. Um, so, for example, you know, we have these conversations as, as though Shaw's algorithm is, is proven to be the only way we could do this. And that's certainly not the case. You never know when somebody's going to have a bright idea and come up with uh, Jones's algorithm. Well it, well, it definitely won't be me, but, um, you know, come up with some other algorithm that can do it more efficiently. And, and at the same time, the people who are building quantum computers, so my company um, or the, the broader company is called Quantinuum, and we build our own um, quantum computers and other companies around the world are doing the same thing. And in fact, in the last couple of weeks, it was interesting to note the Cloud Security Alliance um, uh, stuck their head above the parapet and put a date on their website and it was, uh, I think it was April 2030, they said was going to be Y2K, uh, Y2Q, sorry, is what they called it. And I, you know, that is an arbitrary date to stimulate conversation and action, but it does make us realize that this potentially is not that far away. Q-Day or Y2Q, as you're calling it, it's not necessarily all bad. I mean, yes, unless we do something and we'll get, we're going to touch on what we can do in a second, um, to try and alleviate some of the potential challenges that uh, cracking encryption is going to cause. There's a huge number of positives as well. You've, you've touched on a few of them. Do you mind just sort of uh, digging into that a little bit? Yeah, so I'll, I'll name a few of them. Um, we, we have different groups at uh, Continuum focusing on areas that we expect there's going to be some advantage. So, for example, machine learning is an example of a, of a technology that we anticipate quantum computers will will strengthen and, and bring new capabilities in, in the years ahead. Another example that we touched briefly on is medicine discovery. So one of the challenges with um, you know, coming up with new compounds and understanding how they affect the human body is that it's computationally intractable with classical computers to really um, model all the potential interactions between a medicine and a, and a human body and all the different places where that um, you know, medicine molecule may attach and have, have some impact. And yet with quantum computers, once we have sufficient numbers of qubits, we would be able to perform those sorts of simulations. I mean, this is back to this core idea that the best way to simulate a complex quantum system is with a quantum computer. And so we anticipate that we'll see in, in the field of chemistry and, and drug discovery, huge advances in, in the years ahead with with um, with quantum computers, and, and maybe a final example, which which I just think is really fascinating, is in the area of language processing, and we expect that quantum computers will allow us to, for the first time, to truly understand and process language on computers, but. With, with quantum computers, we, we genuinely stand a chance of being able to understand language. And that's an area that uh, continue, Continuum, we're, we're spending quite a lot of effort on, because we think that's going to be game-changing in the, in the decades ahead. One thing I would 
just like to say, and, and, and it is keeping it positive, is that because we know this is all coming, because it is coming, and we've seen now the early the early benefits of quantum computing in our sciences, in our developments and things, is making sure that we are planning for that that future. And it may be, you know, potentially a silly question, but um, with the power and the strength of quantum computing, and say, for example, against traditional classical computing, when we talk about encryption, for example, do you think we would get to a point where we would use, say, quantum computing against itself for protection, kind of to to utilise, say, quantum computing to do the encryption against itself? Does that make sense? Yeah, so let's talk about creating cryptographic keys. So we all rely on encryption all day, every day, um, and encryption keys are only good if they are genuinely unpredictable. So if your adversary, no matter how powerful they become, cannot predict what your key looks like, then you're in a good place. Now, today, traditionally, we use classical based systems to try and create those keys. And so we are looking to sort of pile on complexity to make it challenging for somebody to figure out what we've done or what we've measured in order to you know, create our cryptographic keys. But the problem is we are still ultimately relying there on assumptions about the computational capabilities of our attacker and also their knowledge of the system that we're working in. Because at the end of the day, classical systems are, are deterministic. And what that means is they there's no magic in there. There's no unpredictability, really. They sort of unfold according to the laws of physics. And, and if you know the state of the system, you know where it will where it will progress to over time, which is not really what we want when we're trying to create unpredictable keys. If you instead turn towards quantum as a solution to this, you get some very interesting properties. So we talked earlier about superposition, which is a reminder is this idea that you can have a qubit that's not just a zero or a one, but it's some proportion of one and the other. Now you can create quantum states that are precisely 50% zero and 50% one. And when you measure those, you will end up with either a zero or a one as, as a classical bit of information, but you cannot tell what that's going to be. And it doesn't matter what computing power you throw at that, whether that's classical computing power or some you know, immense quantum computer in the future, you can't know what's going to happen because that's the way the universe works. Just, just so happens that these things can't be predicted. And so if you can tap into that sort of unpredictability, then you've got a, an opportunity to strengthen cybersecurity systems with quantum. And I think this sort of relates to your question, that is a defense against all forms of computation, whether classical or quantum. So yes, I, I believe that going forward, we'll see more instances of using quantum to, fen to defend against threats. Francis, I'd like to explore that a little bit more. You know, what can companies do now to prepare? If you look at just some of the kind of challenges they face, you know, you've got the National Institute of Standards and Technology. They're not even going to have their quantum resistant algorithm standards ready until 2024, apparently. Um, and then the rollout of that is going to take uh, possibly a decade or more. Um, 
do you think there's too much complacency? Do you think organizations should be doing some of what Duncan's just uh, spoken about now, using what's available already with quantum computing to, let's say, to sort of harden our existing uh, data sets so that they're, that they're less exposed to sort of future uh, cracking by quantum? What else is possible? What should companies be doing? You know, I, I think uh, Duncan's, you know, uh, conversation here is, is absolutely perfect. It is actually generally perfect timing if, if we seize on it now, because it is going to take some time for organizations to start identifying where they are quantum vulnerable. That, that's how I'm phrasing it. So just, you know, looking at a standard organization system to go through all the different pieces of software to making sure that, you know, the, the software is actually of the, of, of the correct, you know, um, version and so on and so forth. What hardware, what actually infrastructure they own, uh, looking at potential future infrastructure, how you're going to build on it, because obviously computing changes so, so rapidly. To do that, understand that, that piece, we would suggest it's going to take 12 to 18 months anyway. More advanced organizations in, in these areas are actually already doing these things. I would also flag one other area because I think it's quite relevant here, and that is um, IoT, and particularly industrial IoT, because there you have a scenario where devices are being built today that will go into the field and will be expected to be there for 20 years or 30 years, for example. And those devices at their very heart have built into them cryptography. You know, why do they trust the software update or the message that they get from their controlling system? It's because they check signatures, they check um, you know, cryptography that is based on quantum vulnerable algorithms at the moment. And so that's another area where people need to be thinking now and, and considering acting ahead of standard, standards being released because of that threat, because we don't want in 20 years time to find that you know, vast parts of our critical national infrastructure are listening to RSA signatures, which maybe are something that you can crack for who knows what, how cheap it will be then, but yeah, it's, it's a real risk. Metaverse is another one, uh, a positive, because again, as we grow in terms of what we can do in the metaverse, we will want that quantum computer, uh, computing to do those calculations, those computations, because it will add a whole richness to what we're able to experience in that, in that space. So, you know, we are already having these virtual reality worlds, uh, but again, we're getting as, almost as far as we can on desktop computers and things that people are using you know, to access some of these things. You need these huge, huge computers on your desk just to you know, play a, a game. And again, with these computations coming our way, and there's big money in that. Therefore, if there's big money and it's a thing that's interesting, you can see that's where a resource will be thrown. So I think we've got some great times ahead with quantum, but it's just making sure that we're ready and we're safe. As usual, um, we could speak about, there's so many questions that we have. Um, I think more importantly, there've been so many answers for me. Um, there's been some things that I didn't really kind of get my head around with, with quantum computers, but I, I think if I had to sort of summarize my key learnings, it would really be that, the power of quantum computers grow exponentially with more qubits, unlike classical computers where, you know, as you add transistors, it just grows linearly. And I think that's really the sort of the key to the whole thing. And then we haven't really answered the question of when, you know, the sort of the Q, the Q day Y2 qubit. I guess if you had to sort of use the, uh, the invention of, of heavier than air flight as an analogy, um, we passed the, the Wright Brothers stage is what I'm hearing. You know, possibly we're a little, not quite at the stage of airlines uh, and certainly not in hypersonic jets but we're getting there fast. So as I say, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We always like to end our episodes by asking our guests three simple questions. 
So Duncan, if we maybe start off with you, looking back over your career, what's the one insight that you wish you'd learned sooner or that you could maybe go back and tell your younger self? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think I would tell myself that you're entering a you're entering a, a domain that never stands still and that if you want to be successful in this space you need to be always hungry to learn more and how about you francis so you know i do subscribe to that yeah that, that lifelong learner i just keep doing course after course uh, but i would have got into languages earlier so i wish i'd learned chinese and russian much much earlier than now trying to learn it as a growing up um, trying to learn the tenses at the moment in Russian is just not good for my old brain but yeah learn languages early. <laughs> and uh, Duncan we also like to ask our guests what they're reading or listening to at the moment is there anything that you'd recommend for our listeners? I, I yeah I have a, a few recommendations aside from your fine podcast of course um, I do enjoy podcasts I listen uh, quite a lot to the Tim Ferriss podcast he interviews um, world-class performers on a pretty frequent basis. So I've learned a lot over the past five or six years from listening to those. Um, in terms of books, uh, I reread June again recently, just because that's one of my favorite books. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's part sci-fi, part philosophy, part leadership manual. It's really something. And finally, to kind of counterbalance all of that, because I can get a little bit overly absorbed in productivity and so forth, I've been reading 4,000 Weeks, which is a uh, more of a alternative viewpoint of we don't have long on this planet and it's not all about working more efficiently, it's about living life uh, in, in a variety of different ways. So I would recommend that highly. Well, those are some good ones. And you, Francis, have you managed to get through The Hobbits since the last time we spoke? Well, see, now, yeah, so I've actually, I knew I was coming on this podcast, so I thought I'm, I'm going to find some books that don't... don't <laughs> <laughs> The two books I'm reading at the moment, you can't see, but one is uh, Russia by Martin Sixsmith, and the other one is Nicholas and um, Alexandra by uh, Robert Massey. So they're the two I'm reading at the moment. Um, yes, slowly, because obviously they've got big words. So yes, I am reading The Wheel of Time uh, by Robert Jordan as well. So, you know, but no, uh, I'm not reading any children's books because they don't like how I do the voices. Oh, Francis. <laughs> So maybe Duncan, for you, say this time next year, where do you think we'll be with quantum computing and quantum cryptography? So I think on the on the cybersecurity side of things, I expect we'll actually see a lot of movement in the adoption of these quantum safe algorithms, um, because we are expecting this to make some announcements in the next few weeks. Not full standardization at this, this point, but they will anoint a few um, likely winners, and I think that will galvanize some action. So I think these conversations will continue. Um, I also expect to see some you know, further adoption of quantum as a positive force in, in, the, in the market. We, we launched our product Quantum Origin in December of last year for generating cryptographic keys, and we're expecting to launch further iterations throughout this year. And I'd imagine just in general, we're going to see more of a shift towards the adoption of quantum as a force for good in, in cybersecurity. And Francis, what about you? I think we're at a very, very good time, and I have stressed that a number of times, I think we're at a very good time that we can, we 
uh, in the cybersecurity industry can start actually thinking about this in a, in a calm, planned way. Where can our listeners learn more about what we discussed today? So um, we, we have a website. You can head to continuum.com and that's where we share information on the different areas that we're looking at, whether it's chemistry, machine learning, cybersecurity and what have you. So that would be a good place to head. Um, we also share a lot as a company on, on LinkedIn and, and various social media channels. So you'll find us on, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, and you'll find me there as well. And I, I'd share a lot of information around that overlap between quantum and cybersecurity. So Duncan, Francis, thank you so much for being with us today. It was really a pleasure to have you with us. And thank you so much also to all of our listeners for joining us on this week's Fishy Business. It's been a pleasure to have you with us and we do hope you enjoyed our podcast. Please do leave us a review on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you're hearing this and feel free to follow us on our Twitter page at Mimecast if you'd like to learn more about what we discussed today. Until next time.